Well, good morning. Uh, before we jump into the sermon for today, uh, I have just a, a few really important kind of family announcements. So if you're visiting with us today, uh, welcome to our, our living room just for a moment. Um, immediately following this service, we are going to have a very brief congregational meeting. So if you are a member of Lake Avenue Church, uh, we need at least 125 of you to be here for a very brief meeting. Let me tell you why we're having the meeting. Uh, just a few weeks ago, we had a membership seminar, and there is a group of people who have made a commitment. They want to be members of Lake Avenue Church, kind of a vow of sorts. And the way our rules are written, for that, for that to be accepted, for the, the other side of that commitment, requires a congregational vote. Now, the next congregational meeting we have scheduled is in August. And that feels like a really brutal relationship to some of us, that you've just committed to us, and we say, we'll get back to you in August. Um, <laughs> So we want to hold a very brief uh, meeting to accept these names and to welcome them into full membership of Lake Avenue Church. I ask you to stay. Um, it will be after the message. So the more interactive you are, uh, the faster this message will go. We'll get to that meeting. But if you're quiet, I'm just going to keep trying to crank until you get excited, okay? Now, I have two other pieces, and they're much more serious. And this will be news to some of you. Um, and so there's some good news at the end of it. But a little over two weeks ago, former senior pastor of our church, Gordon Kirk, who I uh, was hired under, grateful for Gordon's ministry, he suffered an unexpected stroke. Um, some of you, you're, you're going to hear that. Now, the good news is um, it looks like uh, there's going to be no long-term impact to, to his mind, to his brain, and we are so grateful that God has heard the prayers of so many of us. Some of you are still in contact with Gordon and Patricia. Uh, there is some physical recovery that he's undergoing, but um, for all purposes, uh, the road ahead looks, looks as positive as it can be. I, I bring that to you because, one, uh, you need to be aware, because Gordon served faithfully here, faithfully, for so many years, uh, and he is family, and we need to be praying for our family. So if you could join uh, and add into your prayer list, praying for Gordon's recovery from the stroke. Uh, if you don't know who he is, uh, Google him. He's awesome. He was amazing. Um, and grateful that we can stand with Gordon, Patricia, and the family in this time of need. The other thing I want to say is for so many of you, and some of you, you read what's going on in the world with the coronavirus, and it feels very distant in some ways. Um, but that, that is a family reality in this congregation. If you, some of you have family members who live in impacted areas. We have missionaries on the ground in many of the impacted areas. Uh, some in our church family have been visiting and back home and aren't able to get home. Some of you are in deep concern right now. And, and we want to be a church that walks with one another in times of crisis and times of fear. And so if the coronavirus is very personal for you, I, I want you to know we, we see you. Uh, we're praying for you. And we want to pray for you more specifically. And I know this is a big ask and it's a big step, but at the end of our services, we'll have our prayer team, our pastoral team, both up front and in our prayer room. And if you were able to come forward and just share with us who your family members are, what your concerns are, we want to be praying more uh, specifically for you um, and praying for God to heal. So I just want to pray for both Gordon and for that reality real quick, and then we'll jump into the sermon. Will you join me in a brief word of prayer? God, we're grateful for the life and ministry of Gordon Patricia Kirk, for so many of us, how we've been transformed more into your image because of his leadership and teaching, and our brother has, has a need for some healing. And so we ask you, the, the great healer, to enter into Gordon's body and continue to restore every muscle, um, every nerve, 
um, and we're grateful for the way you've preserved his amazing mind, and we pray that his best days of kingdom impact would be in front of him and Patricia. God, we pray for those in our congregation who are, who are stuck abroad because of the coronavirus. We pray for those in our congregation who have dear loved ones uh, who are in, infected or impacted or living in fear. God, we pray for our missionaries on the ground that you would protect and heal and bring an end to this. We are grateful for the opportunity to walk with one another in times of crisis and fear. And God, help us to do that with one another here at Lake Avenue Church. Grateful, I'm grateful, Lord, that we are not a church that just reads headlines about what's happening, but it seems that everything that's happening in this world somehow touches this congregation. So you've given us a great reach. You've given us a great congregation with great need. And so help us to walk more fully with one another in the days ahead. And in Jesus' name we pray, amen. All right, should we jump in? We're in our second week in a series that we've called Reluctant Obedience. Uh, we're looking at some Old Testament people who, who either struggled or were around struggle and what it looks like to obey God. Because, and you heard me last week, I think most of the people we hold up in the scriptures, especially from the Old Testament, we would have a really hard time hiring or electing into leadership at Lake Avenue Church. They, they wouldn't pass the background check. And today... Today we're going to find one that is very different from the person we looked at last week. Last week we looked at Ruth, and we saw her vow, we saw her commitment that in a, when the circumstances around Ruth, the things that were not things she chose to do, but the circumstances around her life, when they were difficult, she models for us uh, the commitment, I will, what I will do in the midst of circumstance. I talked that Ruth didn't cause famine, Ruth didn't cause people to die. There was nothing in the text that tells us that Ruth made choices that got herself in those circumstances. But today, we're going to be looking at the life of David, very different. David makes lots of choices, and we're going to look at some choices that David made today and see what his response is in the time of the crisis he makes for himself. So I want to give a warning. If there are children here, this is a PG-12 uh, sermon. Now, you should know the Bible's rated R, so we're going to edit down a little bit. Um, but I want that fair warning because we're going to get into a very um, famous and uh, notorious episode in the life of David in his uh, encounter, that's a nice way to say it, uh, with Bathsheba and all that follows. It, it seems to me that uh, tonight some of you are going to be watching the Oscars because we live in Los Angeles and we love the movies. And for me, a great movie is one that connects with something deeply inside of me. It's not just a story out there in the distance, but the ones that make me cry, the, the ones that grip me, the ones that I'll be rooting for tonight are the movies that somewhere in the midst of the movie, it connects with something about me and my own life. And my prayer for you today is that this would not be just a distant story of, of ancient Israel and a, a, a king named David. But as we look into his life and we look at the choices he's made, we look at what follows the people around him and the response of God, that it wouldn't just be a story, but it would be somehow connected to your story. And the difficulty is for some of you, you're going to connect very easily with some very dark realities of David, if you're honest about your own life. And I'm humbled and, and mindful of the depth of sin that is engaged in even in a church. Some of you are going to struggle to find yourself in the story, but I pray that you will and that you'll leave as Rich prayed for the offering that we would leave differently than when we've come, that we might get a glimpse of what it looks like to be obedient even in the midst of the messes we put ourselves in. Would you please stand for the reading of God's word? 
We'll be reading from 2 Samuel chapter 12. This is the end of what we'll be learning today. Don't worry, we'll back up and get all of the context and all of its detail in a moment. But this is the conclusion. 2 Samuel chapter 12, starting in verse 7. Then Nathan said to David, You are the man. This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. I anointed you king over Israel, and I delivered you from the hand of Saul. I gave you your master's house to you and your master's wives into your arms. I gave you all Israel and Judah, and if all this had been too little, I would have given you even more. Why did you despise the word of the Lord by doing what is evil in his eyes? You struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and took his wife to be your own. You killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now therefore, the sword will never depart from your house because you despised me and took the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your own. This is what the Lord says. Out of your household, I'm going to bring calamity on you. Before your very eyes, I will take your wives and give them to the one who is close to you, and he will sleep with your wives in broad daylight. You did it in secret, but I will do this thing in broad daylight before all of Israel. And then David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. This is the word of God. You may be seated. That's the conclusion. We're going to back up to uh, chapter 11. But before we jump in, I I want you to know there's so much in the text that can speak to us if we allow uh, false and bad models to teach. I think some of the best lessons I've ever learned of leadership was working under really bad leadership. Like when you see what it shouldn't be, you can get a vision for what it ought to be. And yet I have many examples as well of, of great leaders I've worked with, and worked under and seen how they've lived and how they've modeled. And today, ultimately, we're going to land with some lessons of obedience, what we, can, what we can learn about what obedience is. And some of those lessons are going to come out of the, the bad example, the negative of this story. Some are going to come from the positive. Uh, but if we believe what the scriptures say, that all truth is God's truth, then we should be able to enter this at some level. I want to go over chapter 11 and 12, and there's four kind of ways to understand this narrative. Uh, This is a famous set of scripture for many of us who've been around the Bible, been around church, but I want us to understand this story through one of the words that is most common throughout chapter 11. You can read later and look later, but the word sent shows up a lot. It's the word that describes and connects what's happening in the life of David and the life of this episode. And ultimately what we will see is the word sent in chapter 11 is used to communicate the power that David has and the desire that David has. Power and desire through this word sent that when we read it quickly, we might not pick up on. But let's walk through chapter 11 briefly. Chapter 11 starts in verse 1, and look for the word sent. In the spring, at the time when the kings go off to war, David sent Joab out with the king's men and the whole Israelite army. This is a dramatic shift in the narrative in 2 Samuel. Uh, Israel's at a good place. They've had some victories. They're kind of on the move. David has been successful. This David boy who once had a slingshot and some rocks has now grown into quite the commander, quite the leader. And so when 11 starts out and says there's a war happening, but David didn't go, and he sent someone to go to the war, that's one of the first moments we understand the power that David has, that what got him to this point 
in his leadership, what got him to this point in his stature, we're seeing a change. He's not the one to go out anymore to war. He sends people to war. David ceases to be the king that Israel asked for. You might be aware when Israel is pleading with God and saying, we want our own king, and the journey of Israel getting their own king. In 1 Samuel chapter 8, they say this, we want a king over us. Then we'll be able to be like all the other nations with a king who will lead us and a king who will go out before us and fight our battles. The kind of king Israel wanted was not the kind of king who stayed home and sent people out. The kind of king they wanted looked more like David's life up until this point when he sent Joab out to do the work. David has had incredible success, and what we're seeing in verse 1 is that what got him success, there's a change, a choice that he is making away from being with his people. He moved away from his people. He moved away from his purpose. He even moved away from what his people wanted him to be. So the first thing we see, he sent. Second, in verse 3, it says, now, we know this. In verse 2, we're going to find out that as he's not out at war, he's on the roof, and he looks down, and he sees a beautiful woman. And he is struck by her beauty. So when he should be out fighting battle, he's now looking at the woman of this woman in town. And it says in verse 3, see his power again. David sent someone to find out about her. David has the power to send people to go to war, and he even has people to go find out information about the woman he saw from a distance. He's got extreme amount, he's got quite a staff around him, and they know who is in charge. David has incredible power as a king at this point in his life. He has people who will help him get what he wants and what he is going to find out. So go tell me about this woman I'm seeing, and what comes back to him is crystal clear. The answer, she is Bathsheba. And if you were wondering, David, who she is, she's the daughter of Eliam and the wife of Uriah the Hittite. David sends to find information out about a beautiful woman he sees, and immediately the text says that woman, yeah, she's a daughter and she's a wife of two very specific people. I wonder if the person he sent was trying to persuade him in this moment. I know what you're thinking, David. So I went and found out, and by the way, she's married. But David, just as fast as the text will give us, has no inhibition to continue what he wants. His desire is too strong, and his, his, his desire and his power continue to do some sending. He knew exactly who Bathsheba was. He knew she was a wife. She knew she was a wife of someone who was fighting in the war on his behalf. But his desire for her and his power is fast action because in verse 4 he says, well, then David sent messengers to get her. She came to him and he slept with her. Four verses in, David's having a great day here. David has already done quite a a bit of sending. Sent other people to go fight, not doing what he was supposed to do. Sent someone to go find information about a woman that he's not supposed to have, and then sent somebody to go get that woman. He saw, he took, and he slept with her. In four verses, we see the lust and the passion and the unchecked power and the unchecked desire of a human man. He knew full well who she was. He saw, he wanted, and he took, and you... We cannot mince words here. 
I named my son Henry David Matisich, so I'm all about David. I love that we love our verses about David being a man after God's own heart. We love that we can celebrate the highs of David's life, but can we understand the, the intenseness of what is happening in just four verses? There, there's there's a, a, a famous trial going on right now around a Hollywood producer who sent, who wanted, who took. This is anything but romance. This is anything but mutual. If there's sexual assault in the Bible, I think we can be pretty safe to say this falls under that. David saw, he took. He doesn't need, there's no conversation. It doesn't say they had any dialogue. He sent somebody to get her. She came back, and, he's, and just as fast as his passion and his lust and his desire came, Bathsheba comes right back in the next verse and says, by the way, I'm pregnant. And now David has a big problem. What is he going to do? Because the fast action of sin got him into a circumstance and a situation that he's got a bigger problem now. What am I supposed to do? David, very aware of his power, David, very aware of the problem he's in, in verse 6, he does some more sending. It says, so David sent this word to Joab, send me Uriah the Hittite. Bring back the woman's husband. And then what will follow, if you're familiar with the text, are these foiled attempts to try to get Uriah to be with his wife so that he could pass the paternity off very quickly. But Uriah, throughout this entire episode, stands in contrast to the lust and the passion and the unchecked power of David as the honorable, as the person who has self-control, as the person who has integrity, as the person who, who will not even, won't even enter his own home while the rest of his boys are out at war. Integrity. David didn't go to war. Uriah comes home, won't even enter his home. He can't, he can't do that while the rest of the men are battling. So David's got another plan. If he's not going to do that on his own, I'll just get him drunk. A another low point in the man after God's own heart, life. And the text will tell us that he brings Uriah into the palace and he gets him drunk and going, this will be the thing that his inhibitions will go down. And so then we send him home and he's had too much to drink. Surely then he will go be with his wife. But again, Uriah standing in contrast to, to fast sin and action and disconnection is this continued model of integrity, of doing the right thing. And David's got a really big problem. His plan to cover his sin wasn't working out, but what continues is his sending. And ultimately, this final send is huge. Because up until this point, we've broken two commandments, adultery and coveting, and now murder is going to happen. In verse 14 and 15, it says in the morning, so after this foiled attempts with Uriah, in the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it with Uriah. In it, he wrote, put Uriah out in front where the fighting is fiercest, then withdraw from him so he'll be struck down and die. Hands that letter to this man of integrity, Uriah. Uriah marches back to battle with his own death sentence in his hand. So full of integrity, he would never open it. Maybe he even knows. We don't know. And we see this plot thicken where David's power, David's desire becomes more important than the purpose of the community, where his desire and his power 
are meant to cover up his own selfishness rather than the benefit of the community, the benefit of the nation. And what we'll find out through the rest of 11 is that it works. Uriah will die. Joab's put in a tough situation, sends back word, and David's response to this neutral third party who's not, who's sending messages back to him is so kind of brutal in some sense because he essentially said, yeah, you know, people die in war. So bummer. Casualties happen as if he had nothing to do with the death of Uriah, but to confirm to him, "Ah, I got out of the situation. I'm clear, I'm clean. And then this line, and then this line, and the Lord was displeased. There's the tension. There's the drama. There's the reluctancy. A a, a man with an incredible amount of influence and power and an incredible amount of desire, sexual desire, and he blows it and uses what God has given him to create create quite the drama. But, But that's not the end of the story. The story will continue in verse 12 with a really important final scent. Where David did all the sending in 11, now the Lord's going to do one good send to kind of stop all of this. And it says in verse 1, the Lord sent, the Lord, the Lord sent Nathan to David. No matter how much David did some sending for himself, for his own lust, The Lord wasn't done with David, and so the Lord does the final send and sends Nathan to David. The third movement of these two chapters is Nathan's obedience. It's the Lord who does the sending, but the Lord sends someone named Nathan, and Nathan goes into quite a sermon with David. David and Nathan are by each other, The Lord has sent Nathan, and Nathan begins a powerful sermon with fictional characters, a rich man and a poor man, and somehow has done his homework and put together a message to where he's exposing to David how foolish he's been, how awful he's been, because when he gets to the the highlight of the story about the rich man who had everything, and a poor man who had this one, one lamb, And the rich man just ended up taking that lamb from the poor, and David becomes enraged in this story, going, how is that possible? I mean, the rich man is such a fool. Who would do, he can't do such a thing. He needs to be punished. I, I need us to see something. Notice how brave Nathan is in delivering this sermon to David. We're just a few verses before that David killed someone who didn't even know what he had done. What is he going to do with someone who does know what he's done? You got to believe that when Nathan was standing in front of David delivering this message and going to confront him because the Lord sent him and he had to do what the Lord said, that he thought this might be it for me. We got an unchecked king here with a whole bunch of violence and rage and desire. What's going to happen? And Nathan is bold and he is brave. He is an example for us, and we'll get to that in a moment, of what obedience can look like in the midst of difficulty. Risk is huge for Nathan. But Nathan is a masterful storyteller. He's able to capture David through the story to have David see the degree of how far he has fallen 
the injustice of his power, the consequence of his desire. I love what Eugene Peterson said about this when he says this, I've put it up. He, David, listens to Nathan preach a sermon about somebody else and gets all worked up over the unnamed person's terrible sin. This is the religion of the dormitory bull session, the TV spectacular, the talk show gossip. It is the religion of moral judgmentalism, self-righteous finger-pointing, religion of accusation and blame. So if you haven't identified with anything in David's story yet, this would probably be the place for all of us to enter. Because David responds to this other, this fictional circumstance, this, this hypothetical, in ways that we respond to distant issues and drama in this world as well. Worked up. I can't believe that goes on. We need to stop that. That is so unjust. That is so wrong. That is so horrific. And then if our lives were audited the way we even boldly participate in the kinds of things that live out those realities in the world, the ways in which the things we do in our own hearts and our own minds or in the lateness of, our li- lateness of the evening add to the, to the destruction and suffering and, and persecution of, of people in this world, but we can get worked up about other people's stuff and fail to see the reality of, of the life that we live. So Nathan's creative sermon was able to pull out from David the inconsistencies of his life, and that's what God's word should do for each one of us. Nathan was bold, he was brave to confront David, the Lord sent him, but Nathan was also prepared for the confrontation. Nathan knew he had to communicate in such a way to expose to David the inconsistencies of his life. And ultimately, this sermon worked. This message worked because we closed chapter 12 with where we started, where we ended our reading, is that we see a David who finally submits to God. David's submission. When he says, I have, it's David saying, yep, that rich man who treated that that, that poor man so poorly, that's what I have done. Now, in a quick reading, we might think that David was cornered, like he had to submit, like he had to kind of tap out because he had been caught. But there's nothing that would show us in the narrative at this point that David's all that concerned about God. David has somehow bought the press that he's arrived in life. He's succeeded enough that he gets to call the shots of his life. And the things that he wants are the things that he gets. He's got staff that do the work for him. He's somehow removed himself from the day-to-day realities that got him where he is. And he sits in a position of privilege and power. And he's away from all of it. He didn't have to submit He could have kept going on his road. We're going to see that happen with other figures in Israel's history past David, where they have a moment to repent, to turn back, and they don't. We might think he was cornered, but he was not. He owned his sin. This is a person who knew the Torah. This is the person who knew the Ten Commandments. He knew, ultimately, when he could face it, that he had adultery and killed and coveted at minimum. But ultimately, what makes David great, and that's, we need a lowercase g for this story, but what makes David, I believe, a God, a man after God's own heart, is that in the midst of his sin, 
in the midst of all that he had done, he still had room for God. He still had room for God and God's ways. When confronted, when the opportunity arose to to awaken to the reality of God and God's ways, he did. And what we learn isn't so much about David, but we learn a whole bunch about God, that it's never too late. It's never too late for repentance, that God will always extend forgiveness. So as much as the curse was going to be, the sword curse was going to be on on Israel from that day forward, this also is the beginning of a kind of grace that's going to culminate in the person of Jesus. The kind of forgiveness that's extended when we recognize where we've gone wrong and the kind of God who extends forgiveness and grace, who says it's never too late to come back no matter what you've done. Even in the most horrific of circumstances, it's never too late that we have a God who always extends forgiveness. So our our two chapters, David's use of power and desire, massive. But but God ultimately is going to do the final send and sends Nathan Nathan's obedience to fulfill the call of God in his life by confronting David and then ultimately David owning his moment, saying, I have, I have. So what can we learn? What we can learn about obedience from from this episode in the Bible, this tough one. Uh, There's four things I want us to think about today. I pray that they, they touch you. One, obedience orders power. See, David had because of God. And David seemed to forget what got him there. He forgot whose he was. He put his own successes, his own power, his own desires as paramount in his life, not subordinate to the plans and ways of God that he knew. Thus is the human struggle for many of you in this room. That the more success you experience in life, the more you've accomplished, the more people who think you are awesome, the more power you have, the more staff you have, the more people who will do things for you, the temptation to remove yourself from what got you to that place, to believe that somehow I have done something enough to where I get to call the shots in my life. Now, obedience to God always orders power in the right order. Obedience to God always orders God's God's ordained and, 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 and plan and purposes and way of living, and we're always underneath that. If we want to be obedient to God, we have to understand where we sit in the equation, which means everything we have comes from the hand of God. Every dollar, every job title, every bit of success that we could experience in this life is because God has given it, not because of anything you have done or I have done on our own. See, the Genesis story in this story, I, I, David saw, he wanted, and he took. Eve saw, she wanted, and she took. Same temptation for all of us. We see, we want, and we want to take. And when we do that, we say, I'm in control I'm the most important person in this equation. It doesn't matter what God wants or what he's given. It's all up to me. The best boss I ever worked for, one of the best bosses, I can't say that here because then you're going to, which one? Yeah, so one of the best bosses I ever worked for outside of Lake Avenue Church was a guy named Greg Field. Some of you know Greg. He was the uh, vice president of Forest Home when I worked there. 
If you don't know Christian Ministry World, that's like Microsoft in Southern California. Vice President, and I just remember this guy would walk around camp, and if there was a piece of trash in his way, he would pick it up and put it in the trash can every time, every time. And what struck me was that he was someone who, who had all the title and, and all of the reasons to go, we have a staff that does that here. We have a whole department. But he never separated himself from the reality of the bigger call. And he modeled for me what real servant leadership was. And I pray that I live my life in that same kind of way. See, when we, when we obey God, we understand who we are in equation to everything else, and we learn that, yes, God loves us and he has plans for us, but we're, we're really just another person in this world. No matter what we've accomplished, obedience orders power. Second, obedience battles desire. And I, I use this word battle very purposefully. I'm not quick to use war language in sermons, but this is a battle for us for the rest of our lives if we're human beings. The battle between obeying God and what I want. The battle between obeying what God wants for me versus what I want for myself. It is a battle. Here's the deal. Chapter three, uh, verse three, four, and five are so fast. He sees, he sends, he takes, she's pregnant. Three verses. That's how fast sin is. And I guarantee you, until he got that news back from Bathsheba, he was feeling pretty good. Because if we're honest, there are moments, in the moment, sin sometimes feels really good. Desires of our lives are extremely strong. We are wired to be resistant from the way of living God calls us to. Our desires for safety, for sex, for achievement, for gratification, they will battle in our lives for a desire to obey God. He has all kinds of context for all of those things to be lived out with freedom and joy, but the world that we live in and the flesh that we carry will always battle for a cheap version of all of those things. Do you understand this is why we sing the songs that we sing? Because it's not natural for us to see ourselves and to think about life through the perspective of what God wants? We just declared that we want to lose ourselves in bringing God praise, that our hearts and our soul, we're trying to give God more control, and we want to be consumed by God from the inside out. Your love above all else, my purpose remains, the art of losing myself. We sing these songs, we read these scriptures, we declare these things because we have to say them over and over and over and over again. And if we think somehow we have arrived... I've won the battle. Then I fear that we, we, we hold ourselves susceptible. You can get victories in some battles, but there'll be another battle. You know what I love is there's this whole new science available in the last many years around brain plasticity. You, you familiar with this? That we used to say, you know, you're hardwired. Uh, however you think about something, it can never change. And now science is saying you can actually re- orient your brain and the way you react and respond, that there's ways to actually rethink about how you do things. So this victim mentality that I'm a human and I can't change, that this battle inside of me that I'm always going to lose it. No, we have science now telling us that you actually can change your brain 
which is amazing that it's affirming what has already been declared in God's word in Romans chapter 12, that we can be transformed by the renewing of our mind. So as true as it is that obedience is a battle, it's a battle that we can progress in. It's a battle that we don't have to lose every time, but it's a battle that we are always in. And never let up on that battle, but you can get victory in that battle. Obedience battles desire. Obedience can and will win. But to win... I think there's two other things we can learn from this text. First, obedience requires prodding. Sometimes our sin is so close to us that we can't even see it for ourselves. We need other people. And this is the beautiful part about being a Christian. You know that, yes, there's an intimate, private, devotional part of your connection with Jesus. It's just you and God. But the way God has set up faithfulness to him and obedience is that we follow Jesus together. We need one another. We need to prod and poke and, and help one another live out the purposes of God in our life, that, to acknowledge the battles and to have other people help us and point out to us how it is we are living, how it is we're obeying or not obeying. Awareness, awareness of what we want versus what God wants for us is sometimes best shown by people who live life with us. We need others to help see what we can't see. This is what church is. This is what Christian community is. It's not only just to share the nice things and the victories. It's to get honest and share the struggles because we need one another to see what we can't see. A few years ago, I was with a friend. We were at dinner, and he was in a very tough spot in his marriage, and he was making some choices about the future of that marriage. And I just listened for like 12, 15 minutes. I didn't respond. And he was talking about the journey of their marriage and why he feels the things and things they used to do that they don't get to do now. And he was going through all this rationale and he was sharing at the end the conclusions he's made about what he's going to do next. And they weren't, they weren't great conclusions. And I, he finishes and he says, Jeff, do you have anything to say? And I'm like, oh, yeah, I have a lot to say. Um, I said, do you want me to respond as a pastor or a friend? And he said, both. I go, well, I'll start with pastor. So I'm in the hope business. Um, I believe I have all kinds of hope. As bad as this seems, I believe that Jesus and God can come into this relationship and that redemption is possible, that this can get better. There's nothing you've said to me right now that, that can't be done and outdone by the grace of God. And so I have a total amount of hope. And you're probably going to find lots of people are going to tell you, just go. I'm not going to be one of those people. I'm going to tell you, stay, and you're going to be okay. He goes, okay, what about my friend? Oh, I go, as a friend, I just want you to know, you are the most selfish person I have sat across. <laughs> in recent history, because all you did was talk about you and what you want, and you, you, you. See, I cared about him as a friend enough to risk the relationship. Now, what our relationship now is, like, it's not worthy of this conversation. But you see, sometimes God sends us into places where we, like David, have to, have to risk a little bit, knowing that what God wants to say, or what God's asking us to say, what the truth of the situation is, and, and we are very uncomfortable in our very private, individualized world here where we don't want people to, to get into that degree. I, I think the text shows us that if we really want to obey Jesus, we have to let people in and we have to let people prod. And you need to be the one to prod sometimes too. You know, it's highly possible that God has sent you into certain relationships to be his presence, his voice, his perspective. People and that, that person needs you. 
And there's some people in your life that God has sent to be in your life, to be the person of God, the voice of God, the perspective of God. We need one another. And this is why we have a connect banner. This is why we say small groups and fellowship. We need one another to live out obedience to God. Obedience requires prodding. Finally, obedience is repentance. Last week we talked about obedience being the turning towards God. Repentance is the turning towards God. Repentance, yes, is a one-time moment for many of us where we begin a journey with Jesus, but repentance is a way of living too. You want to obey Jesus? Get used to repenting often. You, you want to follow Jesus with your whole life? It's a recognition of the parts of my day and my life where I haven't quite lived up to what God is doing. You see, for David, his turning toward God, he awakened to the awareness of God it was an awareness of what he had forgotten. It was an awareness of what he had done. And what I love about David in this text, no excuses, no justifications, no blame. We're not used to that. This is the part of the story where we get reminded of how hard it is to be a king and the pressure on David. And surely, I mean, I mean that's understandable. He just got back from war and look, the whole nation's on his shoulder and you know, he had DNA. I mean, he's a man where we can extend some kind of like, like justification that makes it all more palatable. And David doesn't need any of that. Not in the text. He owns it. He owns what he has done. No excuses. And the beautiful part of the story isn't David owning what he had done. That's the repentance part. The beautiful and the pinnacle of this story is what God does with his repentance. We purposely didn't read it. Verse 13, that David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan replied, the Lord has taken away your sin. Now that makes no sense to many of us. I do forgiveness very differently. Just yesterday, my boys were bugging me. We had a little family chat. And they were very quick to say, I'm sorry. And the human being inside of me wanted to make sure they really knew what they were saying sorry for. So I'm like, no, 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 no sorry yet. Let me shame you a little bit more, boys. That's how I do it. I, I, God just does this, just, okay, sin's taken away. That makes no sense to us as human beings. And that's the hero of the story. That's the pinnacle of this story is that what doesn't make sense for you and me in terms of forgiveness is everything about God's forgiveness. I mean, there's real victims here. People have died. A woman has lost her husband. She's become pregnant. They will lose a child. She will then have to be married to this guy who sent for her. And God forgives. God enters into that mess. That doesn't make sense to us, but that is the God that we are obeying. And that makes our reluctance to obey this God an opportunity for connection, not a moment of distance. This is why it's not simply David's story today. It's our story. A story of misused power, a story of lust and desire, a story of creating a scheme to cover our sin, the story of being too close to ourselves, and needing others, but ultimately this can be a story of us owning our stuff. Owning our sin so that the real pinnacle of the story could be realized, the forgiveness of God. This is the story that will begin the kind of grace that we will see and celebrate in Jesus, who enters into our mess 
takes all that mess upon himself so that we could be forgiven and live in freedom, so that we can connect to God and his ways. And the worst day we've had isn't going to define us, but what defines us is the best day that Jesus ever had for us. So we're going to close this service. It would be It would be foolish for us to talk about repentance and forgiveness and the idea of I have and owning without just having a moment to do that ourselves. I'll invite you to quietly and silently, if you want to use the kneelers, please do, to just have a moment to reflect and to finish the sentence to Jesus that says, I have. And what has that been for you this week? Maybe in your life that you've never declared to him that this would be a time for you to articulate what you have done so that you can experience the forgiveness of God. After a moment of reflection, we'll sing one final song together.